Good morning. Well, that seems loud. I don't need extra help for amplification. So. Well, Dave, I'm looking forward to the first annual Christmas and Fourth of July celebration. I'm going to get my list out for you, so you know what you can get me. That'll be fun. Well, it's a thrill to be here with you this morning. Christ woke me up several times last night, and he may have you as well. We had a, quite a show in the sky last night, and it reminded me of several things I needed to tell you today. So this could be a little longer, but it's the Lord's fault. You know, he got me up. But as you look at this title that I have put here, I want you to consider something with me. Some of you understand this phrase, depending on how long ago you started watching television. You'll notice I've written up here, will the true Messiah please stand up? Some of you know exactly where that comes from. There used to be a television show called To Tell the Truth many, many years ago. Now, I'm a bit of an old soul. Uh, My son and I were talking yesterday about how old my grandfather would be. I never knew him. He, He was born, and I want you to I, I reluctantly give you this because you're going to do a math problem for the rest of the service and not listen to me. My grandfather was born in 1886. Just think about that. Um, and, you know, I'm 20, so that's pretty incredible. So I'm a bit of an old soul. Older parents who are both in glory now, as you know, and older siblings. And um, this show was on in the, in the 40s and early 50s. And the the concept behind this show was there was one individual that was telling the truth, that had the real identity of of whoever it was, you know, someone who had done some great feat or someone who was an uh, an airline pilot or you name it. And then there were two others or three others who were not telling the truth. And they were making things up. And the panelists had to decide who's telling the truth. Who's actually the real fill-in-the-blank? Who's the real person who is speaking to me? They would be the ones speaking the truth, and the rest of them are coming up with fantastic tales. So you may be aware of that particular program that used to be on, but we're going to see a very similar thing happen today in our text. We're going to see God Almighty, God incarnate, God in the flesh, reveal himself as the Son of Man to someone and honestly, to more than one someone, and only one is going to identify the truth of this. And that's what we'll see today in our text. So if you will, turn to John chapter 9. As you turn to John chapter 9, I want to share with you the very last verse that Pastor just read to us. This is important. Now, I knew he would be reading this verse because I knew what was planned, but I think it's important to set us up here. The reason people do not believe, the reason people are not breaking themselves down and and humbling themselves and repenting and believing is because of this. They did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. That's what we just read. We just read that from Psalm 78. Didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in his saving power. And we're going to see this on full display today. We're going to see this evident today. So as we go forward in this particular passage, 24 through 41, this is our third in a series of three messages on this same exact chapter and this same exact event where God is on display in the flesh doing incredible things, saying incredible things and an incredible testimony. And here's where we've gone up to this point, uh, where we've, we've been. 
We've seen this man born blind healed, and we covered that in week one, this incredible event. Then the neighbors wondering how this happened, what happened. Last week, this first investigation from the Pharisees, their insights and their division. And then this week, these Pharisees denunciate, or denouncing who Christ is and attacking this man who was healed. And then finally, Christ revealing his true identity. And that's what we'll see play out. So today, very specifically, these two things. Now last week, last week this is what we see. And I want to point out a few things for you. The neighbors of the man born blind, they brought this man to the Pharisees. And if you'll recall, they were driven by their fear of man. Driven by their fear of the Pharisees. Driven by their fear of being outcasts of the synagogue. Fear of their uncertainty of what God's word really says and who the authority was really with that's what we see here and then the Pharisees interrogating this man and trying to figure out the the truth and they're divided and their their fear we noticed and and took note of was their fear of of their own selves of their self-righteousness of the other men around them Pharisees fearing other Pharisees and then finally we see this man's parents interrogated and their fear of man fear of being outcast their lack of understanding of who Christ really is and so this sets us up for verse 24 and following so if you're in John chapter 9 let's let's look at verse 24 and start here and we'll just look at one verse at a time I'm not going to read the whole section at once as I normally do we're going to start breaking this down one piece at a time so let's start with verse 24 we've got our setup So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. I'll read read that one more time. Give glory to God, they say to him, we know that this man is a sinner. Very interesting. You're probably able to start preaching some things to yourself in this, and, and you can do that, but bear with me for just a second. Let's start with this first thing. Give glory to God. That seems like a very honest and good statement, and it is. It is. This means something beyond what we can see on the surface. Let me show you what this actually is. When we look at this in the Greek, it's actually a translation from the Hebrew. This particular phrase, give glory to God, is essentially an idiom that means an Old Testament one. This is one they've been using before. As God is your witness, you need to tell the truth. They are making the assumption he's not. They have already predetermined what they think about this, and they're telling him, you need to now start telling the truth. You need to swear to God that this is true. We've seen this before, this exact phrase, but in in Hebrew, when Achan was challenged by Joshua, he was lying, by the way, and that was revealed by God, and they knew he was, and of course, God had revealed this to all of them via casting of lots, but They knew he was telling a lie, and they say the same thing. Give glory to the Lord. Give glory to to the God of Israel because they wanted him to tell the truth. What have you done? So they are connecting this man with that same phrase. They believe they are righteous in what they are saying. They believe that this is is the the direction that a righteous man should take, is that we're going to challenge them just like Joshua did. So this is something that we see. But I want you to note, if I go back to this, They say, we know that this man is a sinner. We know it. We've decided this. So what is this? What is this problem? We know that this man is a sinner. If we think about this, we're going to connect the dots with John 8, why they think they know. They had in their mind, 
and they have decided this, generally speaking. Now, there's division that they had already decided, predetermined that they knew who Jesus really was. Now, they decided this not based on Scripture. And let me repeat that. They decided this on their own pride, their own understanding, and their own wisdom. What we're going to see today as it plays out is God's wisdom, wisdom that is from above, and man's wisdom. And really, wisdom that is way below. And we see these men approaching Christ with their own preconceived ideas. And although this is something that they clearly do throughout Scripture, this is something we can do to get together today, collectively today. And I mean that as non-believers and as a society, but even within the church, the way we approach Scripture has to be humbly. The way we approach God's Word has to be without the preconceived ideas that come from the world and the culture and our mind and our desires and our sin nature, but our approach to Scripture has to be with Scripture, based on truth and with the, the desire for the Lord to change us, to show us what He has to show us. So as we think of this, where does this heart come from? Christ knows these men. Christ knows their heart. And if we think about this, you can feel free to turn back to this, but just a page before in John 8, 45, I'll bring it up on the screen. Notice, this is the reason they come to this conclusion, we know. Here's what Christ tells them, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Now, I'm going to pause there for just a moment. When Christ says he tells the truth, he's the living word. He's the author of this book. He's the author of creation. He's, of course, the author of our salvation. But he's the living word. The words that he he says to them and that we find in Scripture, they are continual and, and fluid from the Old Testament. They're the same. Same author, same originator, same God. I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He, he answers this question. Whoever is a, of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you're not of God. They are of themselves. They don't know Jesus because they don't know the Father. And they prided themselves on believing that they did. But not based on the word of God, based on their own word, the words of men. So we see this very clearly. We have a a setup for what's going to happen next. They've already decided. They've made a decision. No matter what else comes out of this man's mouth, no matter what else Jesus does, they've already made a decision. And folks, we see non-believers, the lost around us with that same problem today. And I want you to have a heart for the non-believers that are around you as we go into this next section because we're going to have these same sort of conversations with people, very similar conversations with people. Back to 9, verse 25. 9.25. So as we look at this, we see this setup. We know you tell the truth now because you weren't before. They've already decided. Verse 25, this man answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know what you're talking about, but I can tell you what really happened. They, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, they're not wanting to feel, really find truth here. They're wanting to try to find, they're, they're attempting to find an answer that lines up with their own thoughts, their own wisdom, and their own pride. Who did this? How did he do this? What did he do to you? It can't be from God. We already know he's a sinner And this man who is speaking to them has already heard this before. Now, this is our week three, right? So we have repeated some of these same conversations over and over. How many times? Well, for this man, four times. 
So just put yourself in his position now. He was born blind. And we don't know how old he is, at least 13, I think a little older. I, I believe in his 20s. He has been born blind. An incredible thing happened to him. His life changed. Now he's going to find out why it changed very soon here. And he's starting to work it out in his mind. But his whole life has dynamically changed. And, and instead of people celebrating this with him, instead of people giving glory to the Lord with him, all he gets is questioned over and over and over and over again. One more time, I need to put this into our lap. If you're a Christian here, if you're saved here, an incredible thing happened to you. You went from being dead in your trespasses to being alive together with Christ. You went, you went from having the wrath of God rightfully on you to being saved and redeemed. You went from being one kind of creature that was twisted and evil to your heart to being righteous because of what has been imputed to you. An incredible thing happened to you. Do you think the whole world is celebrating that with you? They are not. What's going to happen is you're going to be questioned, and that's okay. When we look at this list of questioning, it starts with the neighbors. Notice they're all asking the same question. How were your eyes opened? The neighbors asked this. Then we go to the Pharisees. How did you receive your sight? Then we go to the parents. How then does he now see? That's what the question was. We don't know. And then the Pharisees again. How did he open your eyes? He has answered this question many times. It's this guy named Jesus. You can say whatever you want, but that's who it is. This is what it is. This is very reminiscent of Matthew chapter 13. Turn there with me very quickly so we can see Christ's words on this. Matthew chapter 13, and then we'll come back to the text. Matthew 13, Jesus, of course, knows the hearts of men. And in Matthew 13, he's making references to why he's speaking in parables. Many moons ago, I did a series on parables here. And I don't expect you to remember what I said every time. But if you remember any of things about that is the Pharisees were so hardened and they were so desperately prideful about their own views about what the Messiah should be in their own mind. And they were so determined that Christ was wrong that they had, they had attributed his power to Satan, as we know. And Christ began to speak in parables. And as we pick this up and we start to think about this and the idea of what's going on, he gives, he gives his apostles an understanding about these men. So picking up at verse 13, if you're there, it says this, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And I would heal them. So similar to what we heard in Psalm 78 this morning. That the reason for this is it's right there in front of them. They're refusing to hear this. In hour number one, we heard about the sovereignty of God. We heard about the, the fact that God is in full control and he di directs the steps of man and salvation is in his hands, but there's a responsibility of the sinner straight on us to respond. If, if, if you are still in your sins, it isn't because God has failed you. It is because you have rejected the almighty God. In spite of the evidence, in spite of what's in front of you, does God, does God save you? Absolutely. 
is, is salvation through grace and faith in Christ alone, through the Word of God alone? Absolutely. But if you reject it, that's on you. That's squarely on you. And when we see this, Christ understands this very clearly. I think that this is kind of interesting when we see this, this conversation over these three weeks we've been talking about it. This all happened, keep in mind, over maybe an hour or two. So he's going to be slightly annoyed by this. I came across a quote here from, from Dr. Woods in his commentary on this, and he says, the blind man keeps answering the question after question, not because the seekers are being intellectually honest, but because of unbelief. This is an extremely powerful force on the human mind, generating empty speculation to reach the result that the darkened human mind and heart wants to reach. Interesting, right? The thing to understand about the unsaved is that they don't like the idea of God in the first place because God communicates the idea of accountability. In John 3, verse 19 through 21, which I'm actually going to end with today, we see that men love darkness rather than light. And consequently, this idea of God, this idea of sin, this idea of Jesus Christ paying the penalty for our sin, this idea of God is coming back to render accountability to all human beings is a concept that is uncomfortable to the unsaved mind. Consequently, what many people try to do is simply discredit Scripture and truth. That's what they do. There are those, of course, that are honestly seeking answers, but everyone that asks you a question is not always pursuing truth. Be discerning. These Pharisees are not looking for truth. This isn't an intellectual problem. It is a heart problem that emanates from a heart that hates the notion of what the true Messiah is telling them. Hates it. Hates that true notion. The idea that I must repent and believe. The idea that I must turn from what I thought to what is true. So what does this rem- how does this resonate with us? Well, we need to be careful now. I, I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am a champion for you taking the gospel to the lost. I tell you to do it every week. I don't think there's a week that I stand in this pulpit that I don't try to challenge you to bring the gospel to an unsaved world. It is your job, it is your calling, it is your commission, and it should be your passion. However, we need to be careful about some of the conversations that we have. Jesus even warns us of this. Notice he says in Matthew 7, Be careful, do not give dogs what is holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Be careful about your conversations. There are times where they degenerate. There are times where conversations that are well-intentioned and good about the gospel, and you desperately want people to see the truth, but you maybe get a sense that they are not there to find truth. They're there to argue. They're just there to argue, and there's times where you gracefully, respectfully, maybe bow out of that conversation. Be careful with that. Christ even told his apostles this as he had sent them out. If any, of the, any place that doesn't receive you, they will not listen to you, won't receive and won't listen, then you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I'm not telling you not to take the truth of the gospel to the world. You should. But be discerning about how you do this. Be careful about how you do this. Make sure that we're not just becoming those who are trying to find a bully pulpit and convince somebody. There's, there's something I have found in teaching teenagers for 20 plus years. I cannot convince them to get saved. I can't sell them into getting saved. I can't dunk them in a tank and get them saved. This takes the almighty, incredible, sovereign, supernatural work of God in their life. I need to present the gospel with respect and love and gentleness, but i got to be careful on 
on how I, how I do that with some. Turn to Jude chapter 1. There is only one chapter in Jude. And I want to show you something that we see here. We see a very similar warning from Peter as well, but I like what Jude says here. This is the half-brother of Christ. And he says this. So Jude, there is only one chapter, starting at verse 17. Now the context of Jude is, is telling us to be, be, be very careful about the apostate, those who claim Christ but have fallen away, who are leading others astray that are maybe not, not, um, not truly in the faith. Okay? That sort of warning, false teachers in and amongst us. So if you're there, this is right before Revelation, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's referencing Peter who speaks of the same thing. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The last times. Well, we've been in the last days since Christ's ascension, and we will be until he comes and takes us home. But we're getting closer to it. I don't know how close, but closer than they were. And he says this is going to happen. Scoffers. These aren't people who are pursuing truth. They're scoffers. They're people who are looking to make fun of the faith, to denounce the faith, to tear the faith apart without any desire to seek truth. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, not true believers. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Notice the help of the Holy Spirit to help us understand Scripture. Building us up in the faith. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. But in the meantime, in your conversations, in your evangelism, have mercy on those who doubt. We have three categories of people here. First one, mercy on those who doubt. Those who are close, this would be someone who certainly deserves compassion. They're, they're seeking, they're doubting, but they're, that they're not just outright rejecting. They're, they're really looking for truth. Have mercy on these folks that are around you. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are those who may be deeper in unbelief, and you can say, see they're, they're getting awfully close to just buying into the world's philosophy, the world's view. The temptations that are, are out there, these ideas and concepts that we hear in Romans 12 that are twisting the mind. And we, we want to snatch them out of the fire. We want to be more, maybe more specific, maybe more uh, challenging, maybe, maybe in some cases more bold with our, our gospel. And then finally, look at this last group, and it says this, but to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. For some, he says, be careful. There are times where you maybe need to distance yourself from it because rather than you influencing them, they are so far down. They are so far rebellious. They are so hardened that they may have an influence on you. So be careful about them. God tells us to be discerning, to be wise. Not to not tell the truth, not to not take the gospel to the world, but be careful on how you do this. Okay, back to John chapter 9. It's a good warning in the middle. Now this man isn't a believer just yet. He's close but he is engaging in apologetics, and that's what we'll see here. Now, he, does a, he takes a tactic next that i, I got to admit that I've done a few times myself. I've done a few times myself. Sarcasm 101. So let's go to 927, and let's take a look at this. So what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, he has answered four times, keep in mind, and he's already told them once. And they said to him, what did he do? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh, that's going to get him riled up, isn't it? 
Do you want to become his disciples? Now, I don't think this is an honest question. He knows they don't want to be, that these guys don't want to be his disciples. They've been attacking him from the jump. He's aware of this, but he's riling them up. Now, I'm not saying that this is a great tactic to take. He does it again in verse 30, notice. He said, why is this an amazing thing? Do you not know where he comes from, that you don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? Why, this is an amazing thing, he says. You leaders don't even know this. This is incredible. I think at this point he knows things are going south for him. I think he realizes this. Now, I'm not telling you that sarcasm is what you should take, but it is not unusual in Scripture, not even by some of the greats. Notice this, Elijah used it against the prophets of Baal. He told them when they were all day long trying to get their false god to burn the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, half of the day they're going at it, acting like fools, and what does he tell him? Hey, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on the journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. He's not being serious. He's being sarcastic. This is um, Elijah's version of trash talk right here. So he used this tactic to try to get under their skin i'm not telling you that this is the best way to do this but this is what we see in jesus over and over have you not read to the pharisees does he know that they've read oh yeah he knows they've read he's saying you don't know the scriptures have you not read later on we'll see with nicodemus you're the leader of israel and you don't know this that's sarcasm that we're seeing here what we see is the idea here is that the Pharisees had finally come to believe that the blind man was healed. They, they did believe that, but they still held that anyone who broke the Sabbath was a sinner. They, they just decided that that was the case. The former blind man was irritated, and having to reply to question after question, it devolved into sarcasm for him. I'm not saying that he did the right thing here. He's not a believer yet, but you can see how this happens. And again, I, I wouldn't say that this is the greatest tactic that we should use, but we know what happens because he does it. Because this devolves in this way, notice what the, the Pharisees do. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are his disi- the disciple of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. That, they, they immediately start attacking. Oh no, that's you. And when they say you're his disciple, remember what we know was knowledgeable of all from last week. Remember, and if you just go back a few pages, or maybe a few verses rather in your Bible, when the parents were afraid, they knew, we know why they were afraid, because they were going to be thrown out of the synagogue. Just a few verses ago we heard this. John is giving us this insight. They know what's about to happen here, and he seems to be okay with this, because again, his life changed. And when, when Christ changes your life, everything else pales. If he's truly changed your life, the things of this world, they just become strangely dim don't they? In the face of Christ, things just don't, down here, that used to be so important, they just don't seem the same. And that's what we see out of this man, but the attacks begin to happen. What I think is interesting, and this, this I got from uh, Professor John Hart, who was a, is a professor currently at Moody Bible Institute. He did a commentary on John. He said, the Jewish leader should have marveled at Jesus' healing of the blind man. Instead, the blind man marveled at the Pharisees' ignorance of the healer's origin. They should have marveled at what happened, but instead what we have a flip-flop is that 
This guy marveled at their total ignorance of what really happened and what the Old Testament said. And then notice this, this last bit. The difference is reasoning with sound Old Testament theology versus reasoning with pride and self-righteousness. That's the difference. What you're going to marvel at is either yourself and your own intellect, or you're going to marvel at the incredible God that is revealed to you in the Word of God. You're going to see the Messiah as he is, as revealed in Scripture. I think that was a very insightful take on this particular section. So as we continue on this, it's devolving, it's starting to go at it, and this man is going to double down. Notice as we go to chapter 9, verse 31, 931, says this, We know that God does not listen to sinners, he says. This is his response. But if anyone is a worshiper of God, he does his will. God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now, as we look at this particular text, this is why I don't believe he was 13 years old. I think this is some wisdom right here. This is a man who knew the word of God and began to apply it. He began to apply it. Now, in a new light, of the fact that he has encountered the Messiah. Now, he's going to realize this for certain, who he is, but in his defense, he hadn't seen anything. He had never even really seen Jesus. He had never personally encountered him with a conversation that went any deeper of than what God commanded him to do to go wash in that pool. So we see this man knowing his word of, the word of God and taking us there. Notice how he says this, we know. How does he know? Now, remember, The Pharisee said, we know. And when they said, we know, it was based on their own rules, their own writings, their own pride. When he says, we know, he's pointing us to Scripture. This is apologetics. This is what we ought to do. We know that this is true. Keep in mind, when we referenced Jude earlier, Jude referenced Peter and what Peter says, that you should always be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have within you. How do we make that defense according to 1 Peter 3? Well, we know the Old Testament We know what the prophecies say. We understand what the Word of God means. We let Scripture defend and define and interpret Scripture. We know our our Bibles. We don't just come on Sunday and open them up. We open them up every day. And we consider them holy and precious and the only thing that is absolute truth that we can count on. Not our feelings, not our experiences, but the Word of God. So we see that he does this, and he does this in two parts. Notice, we're going to see part one is that he says God doesn't hear the prayer of the sinners. Where does he get this? He gets this from several places. I won't dwell on any of them. I just want to show you how they're all over Scripture. Look at Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He's right about what he is saying. Keep it going here. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then finally in 1 Peter, New Testament, to make a connection, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now this, of course, is applying to us, we human beings. But he's applying this to Christ. If this man were not of God, God wouldn't listen to him. If he were truly the sinner you are depicting him to be, writing him out to be, God's not listening to him. So part one of this defense is the Old Testament tells me, the Bible tells me that this, and this is, remember, 
He's, he's already challenged them that they should know. He's amazed that they don't. You should know these scriptures. God isn't going to listen to a sinner. God's not going to listen to this man. He wouldn't be able to do these things if God weren't with him. That's not possible. Part two is verse 32. I'm going to go back to this for a second. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. What's he referencing? Well, he's making a connection here. He's making a connection to the prophecies about the Messiah. He knew, number two, what the Messiah will do. He knew because the word of God says so. What will the Messiah do? Well, look at this. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom the darkness of the eyes of the blind shall see about the Messiah, and he knew it. Isaiah 35, 5, and I'm just giving you a few. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. He knew. Isaiah 42, 7. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoner from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He knew. How did he know? Because he knew the word of God. He said, this has never been done before. This is brand new. There's a lot of amazing things that we see in the Old Testament. A lot of miracles that we see. Jesus is exclusive with this one. We don't have men who were blind and now can see. Not from a physical perspective or a spiritual perspective. It has now been revealed to them. Incredible thing. What I see about this is something that I, I think is resonating with us as believers. At least I hope it resonates with you. I think this way when I consider how God has allowed me to teach the Bible for so long. How I can even stand up here in front of you. I contend that you're all smarter than me. Wiser than me. More well read than me. And yet what does God do? He uses the simple. A little country bumpkin like myself. And I'm not saying you're the wise to shame the wise, but he uses people like us to bring the word of God to bear in people's lives. The normal, regular, every day. What is this? And Paul believed this of himself, who was well, he, he was well versed in scriptures, but he understood that he got humbled by the Lord. Look at what it says. Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I want to pause for a minute. That doesn't mean you don't know the word of God. It doesn't mean that you're not strong in the faith. It means that you're not strong in your own might. It means that you're not strong in your own wisdom. That you're strong in his, the power of his word. That that's going to come out. There, your humility is going to allow God, and your meekness is going to allow God to be magnified in your words and in your deeds and in your testimony. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's where we sit here. This man was already going down this journey. He was already starting to do this. He hadn't received the Holy Spirit. I don't believe he's even saved yet, because we know what's required of that. We'll see this in the end. But the journey's beginning, and he's already putting things together with the word of God. And this is what's really important about salvation. Now moving on, as we go, verse 35, 935, back to John, 935. And notice they, in verse 34, which we didn't, he could do nothing in verse 33. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. They cast him out. So in utter sin, you would do this. They had already preconceived who he was, who Christ was. They cast him out. 
This man, I don't believe, is too concerned about that at the moment. I really don't. He's not concerned about that. He's more concerned about what happened to him and who did it to him. But they cast him out. And then notice this in verse 35. This is incredible what our Savior does. This is an amazing event that happens in the middle of this story where the sovereignty of God is at work. Where John 6 is at work. Any that the Father gives me, I lose none. Do you think that somehow Jesus was not aware of these four conversations? He was fully aware. Did he not know that these were going to happen? He predetermined that they would happen. Do you think that he didn't realize that these Pharisees would somehow be hardened and they would challenge this man and throw him out? He knew exactly what would happen. And he's positioning this man perfectly so that he will respond just as he should for salvation in just a moment. It's an incredible act of sovereignty. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's what he starts with. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now keep in mind, I skipped this. Remember last week. Remember last week, who do you say that he is? What do you say about him? And he was working through this, remember, those stages that he was working through this, and he's fortunately using Scripture to do so. And the encountered risen Christ that we will, well, he's risen for us, but will be risen in, in the future in this gospel even. He, in, he used the truth that was in front of him to do this, but the challenge has already been set. Who is this man? Who do you say that he is? But Christ does the same thing. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a really important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now notice that when we think about this, this and, the, and this idea and the, the, where this, the process of where this guy is going, uh, Phil Johnson has a great quote on this. I'll bring it up on the screen and read it to you. This is not the hardened ignorance of unbelief or the passive ignorance of laziness. This is the very beginning of true faith, seeking more information about who Christ really is. Let me back it up. When he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? His answer, his question, isn't out of unbelief. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Keep in mind, he was blind. He didn't know what was going on. I hadn't seen anything yet. And remember that all of the, the times that he, they inquired of him, he, he's like, I, I'm just telling you what happened. I, I don't even know this man yet. I don't know who he is yet. I, I want to believe this, but who is he so that I can believe in him? So back to his quote, he says this, this is an objective body of truth that must be known in order for there is an objective body of truth that must be known in order for faith to be born and this man needed to know that truth. Now I'll just right in the middle of this quote this should bring to mind Romans 10. It should bring to mind for you how salvation works. Romans 10:17, you know it well. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ was standing right in front of this man. He had the Old Testament. So did these Pharisees. But they had the Savior in front of them, and they rejected him outright. This man was going to be challenged by Christ to think this through. Objective truth in his face. He was asking good questions. He knew that he needed to understand the truth of who Jesus really was. Back to the quote. So he makes no attempt to veil the fact of his ignorance. Jesus then takes the blinders off completely by saying to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. In other words, I am the Son of Man. Imagine that chilling moment for him. We already know this young man knows the Word of God. So if he knew all of those, those Psalms and those Proverbs and those prophet of Isaiah quotes, and I'm assuming he did, that's why he said those things, he also knows Daniel chapter 7. 
Who is the Son of Man? Well, when we think of the Son of Man, we should be thinking of this passage. This is where we see this incredible scene in heaven. We see this in a, a moment in time that is captured in times past because God's outside of time where the Ancient of Days gives authority to the Son of Man. This should be mind-boggling to all of us because God doesn't share His glory. It's not mind-boggling to the believer because we understand the Trinity, well, as far as we can on this side of eternity. But we understand that He's not sharing glory. He's three in one. And it says this, I saw in that night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. Now you might be thinking, oh, did the Pharisees just miss that whole thing about the Son of Man? They just didn't know about Daniel 7? They weren't aware of it? Well, they knew, which is why Jesus chooses to use this title more than any other. Notice, 70 times he uses Son of Man. Why? To bring it right to bear in their life, to challenge them, to tell them, I am who you've been waiting for. Can you see it? It's right here in front of you. The prophecies are being fulfilled right here. The kingdom is at hand. It's right now. The king is in your presence. Can you see it? Will you see it? It's an incredible thing. Christ intentionally does that. He is taking the listener, the person who was in front of him, you today, as we read the scriptures, back to Daniel 7, so you understand he's the one. He's the only one. He's the only one worthy. He's the only one that is the Son of Man. He's the only one that's the King of Kings. He's the only one that is the Lord of Lords. He's the only one that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. He is the only one. Anointed Messiah. He was taking them back much like He does on the cross. When He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking the listener, the reader, the person right there in front of the cross to Psalm 22, to show how he's fulfilled this prophecy. He's doing the same. He's doing the same, and he's doing it with you, and he's doing it with me. And I love what Christ does here. He doesn't just make it general. He doesn't just kind of flippantly say, hey, I'm the son of man. Notice what he does, and he does this often. He challenges him. Do you believe? Do you personally believe? this? Now, we're going to find out the Pharisees were in the peripheral. They had followed because they wanted to attack more. But he's looking at this man. I can just assume it's eye to eye. Just try to put yourself in that spot. Okay, this is the first time he's really probably processed who it was that, that, that did this to him, this incredible miracle. But he's now, through this inquiry that he's gone through these four times, he's putting together, this is the Messiah. That's who this is. And he's ready and he's asking questions. And Jesus says, do you believe? And notice 938, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. No hesitation. Right at it. You say, I think I've seen this before. We have. Christ does this. We should do this. We should challenge people with, who do you think he is? Who do you say that he is? Folks, if you're sitting here today and you're still just playing a game, today's not the day to play this game. There's no no game that you should be playing with the Almighty God. The sovereign God that we heard about in hour one. He's not someone to trifle with. If you're being convicted today to consider who he is, today's your day. He does this with Peter. Notice I've highlighted 
and bolded a few things. We see this, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's the question to the apostles. And then notice it says, but who do you say that I am? Very specific and personal. This isn't just general. I'm not just shooting this out. You and the Lord have to have a conversation. Who do you say that I am is what he's asking you. Who do you say that I am? And if you're a believer, he's saying the same thing. Who do you say that I am? Are you going to serve me today? I'm the one who saved you. Do you remember that? Why do we continue to do the Lord's Supper? We do this in remembrance of him. It's good to remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of who he is so that you will serve him better. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And to connect the dots from this morning, hour one, this came from above. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to him. Jesus told Peter, the Father in heaven gave that to you. But that's not the only time we see this challenge. Mary and Martha, we see this at the, 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 just before the resurrection of Lazarus, this question. Jesus says this. He says, very specifically, a question, a challenge. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice, do you believe this? He's not saying this to the whole crowd. He's having a personal conversation. Do you believe it? As you read scripture, this isn't for everybody else. It's for you. As you read it, the Lord is speaking to you. Do you believe this? Christian, non-Christian, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then one more time we see it with Thomas. This is after the resurrection. Thomas struggling. He wants to see the scars before he believes. And he says to him, put your fingers here. See my hands. Put on... Put out your hand, place it on my side. Notice this time it's a command. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Once again, is it personal? Absolutely. Does it go through time and space to you? Absolutely. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas gave a great answer. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And you say, well, this is an interesting succession, but look at what Jesus says here. He is extending it to you personally. He says, you've believed because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now he's going through time and space to you. Now it's to you. So what we see happening here is a transition. He says, I believe, and then he worshiped. Once again, I'll, I'll tap into Phil Johnson. He has a great commentary on this. This is genuine faith. And notice, it's not a matter of reciting a formula prayer or asking Jesus to give you a more fulfilling life. If a person has never acknowledged Jesus as the rightful Lord of the universe, and fell on their face spiritually before him in worship, then they haven't come to real faith. They just haven't. A person needs to confess their blindness and ask the Lord to give them a true knowledge of him. Notice, ask the Lord to do that. That's what Miss Man did. Tell me. Tell me more. Show me the truth. The truth standing in front of him. He humbly asked this. That's what this man did, and his confession is amazing because it's so immediate and so profound. Lord, I believe. I believe it. There's no hesitation, no holding back, absolutely no restraint, and he worshipped him. In that, in, in that culture, this probably meant that he fell prostrate flat on his face, right in front of everybody. In front of everybody, including the Pharisees who had followed him. And he is worshipping, in their mind, a sinner. And he understood the ramifications, and he didn't care. Believer, do you worship the Lord that way on a daily basis? Will you put yourself out there and humble yourself before the Almighty God just to simply do His will as the Word dictates? Will you worship Him 
in spirit and in truth in your daily activity? Will you do this in front of your culture? That's what this man does. He understands. Now, now we're, we're warned about this in Revelation. Don't forget about your first love. If you're in Christ, you felt this way. Do you still revitalize that? The Word of God's going to do that. Remind yourself of who he is. Fall prostrate in front of him. He was acknowledging that Jesus is God incarnate, and it was Christ who revealed this truth to him, right there to him. And it was Christ who revealed it to you. No room at all for pride. No room at all for your pathetic and my pathetic works. My self-righteousness. That's what the, the, the Pharisees attempted to do, and it didn't work, and it still doesn't. This man was broken before the king of kings. So we, we saw this last week. Notice this progression. Man called Jesus to a prophet, to one that's sinless, a man coming from God, and then finally, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Incredible. And it's, it's something that we have to consider today. Pastor used the, a portion of this quote a few weeks ago from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, but I'll bring it up again because it, it bears repeating. You must make your choice. This is to us too. Either this man was and is, Jesus, the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Didn't intend to do that. Not today and not ever. So as we close this, it'd be nice if that were just kind of the end of this. And everybody believed and went on and started worshiping the Lord, but that's not the case. Get back to the text, John 9, 39. How does this end? Jesus knowing who's around. He sees this man who's now his, his child that he just saved. He revealed the truth to, and this man believed it and worshiped him. Amazing, but Jesus knows what's around him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This is more than just physical blindness. He knows what he's doing here. Some of the Pharisees knew it too. Look at this, verse 40. He says this to them. Verse 40, it says, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Now just stop. They knew he wasn't talking about physical blindness. (laughs) They knew what he was talking about. I have a guess, since they were in the peripheral, he started looking at them now. This one-on-one conversation with his, his child that he just saved has now shifted to the men who were rejecting him outright. And I have a feeling he's looking at them. And he's saying these words, and they know it's not about physical blindness anymore. This is about spiritual blindness. And as he looks at them, they know it, and they go right back at him. Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. If you were totally blind, you'd have no guilt. If I didn't reveal this to you, if you didn't see what you saw, if you didn't admit that somebody got healed, yeah, that you wouldn't have any guilt. If I didn't come and prove it to you, you'd have no guilt. But, but you do see a little bit. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You saw the proof, you saw the evidence, and you still say, I'm a sinner. You still say, I'm of the devil. You still say, you're not my Messiah. That's a problem. That's a real, real problem. The judgment that Jesus brought into this world was the condemnation of sin that would lead people to faith. This judgment was so that those who do not see may see, that is, spiritual blind, may believe and gain spiritual sight. That's what he came to do. 
But the antithesis of this is those who became blind, the self-righteous who see may become hardened. They think they see. We know. We know who he is. We preconceived what he is. Based on my understanding, my wisdom, I think I know. But instead they say, we see. Therefore Jesus declares that their sin of rejecting Christ, it remained. Jesus says, he's addressing this with them later in John 15 or talking to apostles about this and this situation. I tend to think in John 15 in the upper room when Jesus is speaking to his apostles in this way, he's thinking back to accounts just like this one. Just like this encounter that he had with the Pharisees after healing this man who was born blind, notice what Christ says in retrospect. It happened throughout his entire ministry, so I think he's got them all in mind. But look at what he says. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. If I hadn't proven who I was, but now they have no excuse for their sin. You might think, oh, those Pharisees, remember what I told you. We could fall into this category very easily. We see, we see the proof of Scripture. We see it revealed to us every week here. Some of you listen to, to sermons all week long. You study the Word of God, and you still haven't believed. Your guilt remains, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in John 9. And he's referencing back to this. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The word is written in their law, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So let's end this. Where does this end for us? Well, John chapter 3. Turn to John 3. And I want to take you there very quickly just to show you the context. Their guilt remains. Jesus doesn't want your guilt to remain today. He wants you to think this through and understand what this is about. One of our earlier quotes referenced this passage. John chapter 3, we understand this incredible encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus Christ. But we also understand that John writes this in here because Nicodemus approached him in the night because of his fear of men. And keep in mind... Jesus even acknowledges the sort of teacher that Nicodemus is. Just really quickly in John 3, 10, when he's telling him about the Holy Spirit and certainly referencing regeneration, Jesus answers, and he doesn't understand this. How can this be, Nicodemus says in verse 9. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? When he says the teacher of Israel, we generally infer that he was a teacher of teachers, that Nicodemus was an elite amongst them one who taught other Pharisees. And he says, you should know this. You should know this. And as he talks to him about the gospel and who he is, it culminates with one of the most famous passages of all time. But people stop at verse 16 and don't go any further. We're not going to do that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 16. We all know that. Anybody that's watched a football game on TV has seen John 3.16. But John 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21, these things really help uh, help us understand this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Understand the heart of God. He loves the sinner. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's Old Testament to New Testament. That's true. Right here it tells us this. He didn't come here to condemn it, but notice... Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That man that received his sight when he, when he considered the Old Testament, he considered the fulfilled prophecies, when he saw the, the Savior in front of him, he believed it. And he's not condemned anymore.
But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And notice what he says in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People who love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People don't want to hear accountability. They don't want to hear judgment. And they don't want to hear repentance. They don't want to hear this idea of change. They don't want to hear the idea that, that what, what, sal- what happens at salvation is a change of life, a new creation, the new creature, that old things have passed away, the new has come, that we're now different, that there's proof, there's fruit that will come. Nobody wants to hear that sort of thing. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, that God did this. God is responsible for salvation, and God is responsible for ours. So my challenge to you is this. Believer, remind yourself of the Almighty. Remind yourself of who saved you. Fall at his feet, prostrate today, and be willing to do whatever he calls you to do. No matter what the culture says, no matter what the people around you, your neighbors, your boss, your family, you serve the Almighty God. You remember what he saved you from and for. And for the non-believer, today's your day. He doesn't want to condemn you. He came here to not condemn you. He came here to save you. But if you don't believe in the only name that is given among men by which we must be saved, you're condemned already. And God's calling you, challenging you to say and ask this question of yourself, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? It's the question of all questions. It's the eternal question. And you need to ponder it and consider it today. And if you have decided, I believe he is the Christ, don't hesitate. Cry out to him. And by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, based on the scripture alone, you too can be saved. What an incredible God we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible account that you give us so much detail on. We thank you for the ability that that we pathetic horrible sinners that are dead in our trespasses the ability that you give us the ability that you that 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 you give us to somehow come out of that that's all by grace we've done none of this we couldn't do it this man couldn't do it these pharisees couldn't do it left to our own devices none of us would do it but praise be to, to you that you've done it you've saved us and for some you're working on their hearts right now you're, you're convicting them right now. Your word has penetrated, and they're trying to think, what do I think about this man? Who is he? What does that mean to me? It means everything to them, Lord, and I know that you know that, and you desire for them to be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Draw them to yourself. Your son will save them. They repent and believe. Give them the faith to do that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.